0: John chapter 13, verses 1 through 38. These are the words of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter saying that. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you, but I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which, of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it, to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when they had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, Now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you. Give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us. This gift of mercy and grace and justice is a tremendous gift, and we glorify you this day. Help us, Holy Spirit, to look at your word, understand your word, and apply your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's Passover week and Jesus and his disciples have secured the upper room to share a meal together. There's debate on whether or not this was the Passover meal or it was the night before. It was probably the night before. There are no distinguished guests of honor, no Pharisees, no scribes, no formerly dead men named Lazarus, no Nicodemuses, no friends like Mary and Martha, and no Samaritans, None of them are present. It is Jesus and the twelve only. Typically, the servant of the house would gather a basin of water and a towel and wash the feet of the attendees upon their arrival. But there is no servant slave present. Actually, there is. Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. So what does he do? Well, in this moment, he teaches. He teaches his disciples about the glory of the new commandment. But before he says anything, he enacts the greatest illustration, which explains in miniature that which is soon to come. The greatest act of self-giving love, namely the cross of Christ. The Son of God, who came from on high, emptied himself, not of personality, And glory, though the latter was veiled, no, he emptied himself in the sense that he laid aside his divine rights, as Paul tells us in the book of Philippians. He stooped low, taking on the very flesh and blood that marks our own existence. True ontological being that defines and transcends the universe came into this world as a human being. That is glory. This is glory. It is glory because it has meaning. It is glory because it gives meaning to your life, my life, and to the world around us. It is glory because it is light in a world that has fallen in dark. It is glory because it is self giving. And what does glory look like, practically speaking? Well, Jesus gets a towel. That's glory, that is supremacy. That is what the world simply cannot and will not ever understand, as we shall see. Jesus knew his hour had come, and he loved his disciples to the very end. That word there in verse 1, it really means to the end. He loved to the uttermost, all right? In other words, love overflowing type of love. That's what Jesus had done. During supper, Jesus set aside his outer garment, his outer tunic, He grabbed a towel, he girded himself, meaning he probably strapped a towel around him and then also had another towel there handy and present. And he did all that in preparation for this menial task. A menial task that's very much divorced from our own understanding of foot washing. We don't have that type of thing typically happening today. He poured water into the basin and one by one, Jesus, our Lord, the God-man, the creator and sustainer of the universe, walked around, and one by one, he stooped down, washing off the day-long accumulation of dust and filth off of the feet of his beloved disciples. Again, this is glory. Probably getting to Peter last... He washes Peter's feet, and Peter, well, before that, he, he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Translation, that doesn't comport with my understanding of power and authority and social structures. You wash my feet? Jesus tells him in verse 7 that he doesn't understand it now, but he will apprehend the meaning meeting at a later date. Peter, O oh, valiant Peter, Refuses to allow his master to wash his feet. How could Jesus do this? He's a master. He's a lord. He's our teacher. He's not a servant. Or do we not understand what it means to be either of those things? See, there is no category for this type of behavior in the natural man's mind. And thus, Peter politely refuses the gesture, he declines. And yet Jesus tells him in response in verse 8 that if Peter doesn't allow this, Peter has no part with him. The words must have cut deep into Peter's heart. Peter loved Jesus. He was fickle, but he loved him. If you don't allow me to do this, Jesus says, you have no part in me. That must have cut him deep. So in response, his tune changes a bit. He wants to be of part of Christ. And he wants to be a part of Christ's work. And so he asks for his entire body to be washed. Why stop there if you're going to serve me in this way? And this is how I partake of this relationship. Wash my head, wash my hands, clean me, do all of it. Why would you not? See, Peter's feet are dirty, not the rest of his body. For the disciples, they would have come that night clean. They would have washed themselves in preparation for the meal. There was meal rituals anyway attached to that with social customs and God's law for, for staying off disease and so forth. Of course, they wouldn't have washed their feet. Their feet would have accumulated much grime from the day's activities. They would have had dirt on them just coming from their house to this room. So his feet is dirty, not the rest of them. And Jesus says, well, he is clean. In fact, they're all clean, except for one. One of them is not clean. What does that mean? <laughs> Jesus shifts the meaning around. He uses, his, he uses this enacted picture to basically describe the current affairs of this ragtag group. John tells us, if you have your Bible, down in verse 11, that Jesus said this because Judas the betrayer was there, and he's not clean, he's dirty. Yet note that Jesus washed Judas' feet washed his feet. The very man who betrayed him, a true enemy of Christ, if there is ever a definition of a true enemy of Christ, what did Jesus do? He washed his feet. Let that sink in. Having washed their feet, he put his outer garments back on. He sat down. He reclined at table. They would have reclined on their left arm at the table and would have partaken of the food that way. And he asks a question. He says in verse 13, or verse 12, rather, do you know what I have done to you? Do you know what I've just done to you? Quite a poignant question. That's a real question. He is teacher and Lord. They are right. Verse 13. But what does that actually mean? And here's what it means here's what it means to be Lord. Here's what it means to be teacher and master. If the Lord and master washes feet, you must go and wash feet as well, he says in verse 14. And then he says in verse 15. That this is an example to be repeated. Now, it's not an ordinance, um, especially those of us of the Reformed tradition. We have two sacraments, two ordinances, two um, things that we do. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Foot washing in a lot of denominations is actually considered an ordinance, and it's highly recommended. In fact, they'll do foot washing ceremonies sometimes, maybe on Good Friday or you know, times like that. But it's not an ordinance, it's a principle. And the principle Jesus is using to demonstrate and teach it is the principle of self-giving service to others. Self-giving service to others. He says in verse 16 that a slave, a servant, is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. In translation, Jesus was sent by the Father, he listens to his Father, And in obedience to the Father, Jesus stoops low as a servant, as a slave, as the person at the bottom of the social stratosphere. All the customs of society, the slave is at the bottom. Jesus goes that far. Now, if that's true of Jesus, if that's true of him, how much more is it true of us who are sent by him? He was sent by the Father, and that's how he acts, How do we act when we're sent by Jesus, which he will do later to his disciples when he breathes on them this new creation? It's an odd text. We'll get to it. And then he sends them. See, our Lord instructs his disciples to know these things, to know these things, verse 17, so that they can experience the blessing of doing doing these things. Of course, you know, this won't work for every single disciple because there is one present who will lift up his heel against Jesus. In other words, Judas will betray him, verse 18. Jesus explains to them in verse 19 that he's telling them this now, so that when it happens later, they will believe him. Jesus is essentially prophesying. He's telling them, forth telling them things that are going to happen in the future. The one who receives the disciples later receives Jesus, and the one who receives Jesus receives the Father, verse 20. See, ministry to others, listen, ministry to others is bound up in our relationship to God. They're tied together. You can't separate them. There is no, I love God, but I don't love my neighbor. That theology doesn't work, and we'll come back to that. The rest of the passage tells us the story of Judas being called to the carpet. Jesus quite literally shames him. Jesus is troubled, and he explains to the group tells them that one of them will betray him one of them is present and he is a mole the disciples aren't sure what jesus is talking about let alone who he's talking about either peter and john if you can imagine them staring john was right next to jesus he was the one laying on him the one who who jesus loved That's his humble way of describing himself. Peter is probably sitting across the table. Peter and John lock up and they're like, what in the world is going on? What are they talking about here? And Peter asks, well, who is it? He he says to John, "Who, who is he talking about? And then John, of course, asks the question. Same question. And then Jesus said, it's the one to whom he gives the morsel. So Jesus takes a piece of bread and he... Dips it in what would have been probably a fruity sauce type thing, and he hands it to Judas. And then he says to him in verse 27: What you do, do quickly. Talk about an awkward meal. Worse than some Thanksgivings, probably. (laughs) Nobody's quite sure what's going on. Some thought that Jesus sent him out to go get some more food for the Passover meal, which would have probably been the next day. Of course, then you have others who thought, well, maybe he's going to give money to the poor because Jesus would do that often. But it was nighttime, as John tells us in verse 30, and that is not a small point. It is nighttime, and that's when darkness separates and leaves when the light of Christ shines. And it is in this moment that Jesus makes it clear in verse 31. I want you to read that, look at it and see. Verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Why now? Judas is going to betray him. It's, all, it's now, this is where it's going. See, this is where glory is yet again revealed. The glory sharing of the Son and the Father is about to be revealed in the events that follow. The betrayal of Christ, which will lead to the arrest of Christ, which will lead to a faulty kangaroo court trial of Christ, which will then result in his arrest and beating, and then that will send him to the cross where nails will be driven in and blood will be poured out. All of that is glory. That is the weightiness of God on display. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And then in verse 33, he says, look, as little children, you're going to need to know that he's going to only be with them a little while longer. And where he is going, they cannot come. It's not their calling. This is Jesus' calling to go to the cross. So he gives them another nugget of glory. And this is the glory of the new commandment. Love one another. You're to love one another, but not love each other the way that Leviticus had framed it, though the way Leviticus framed it was perfect and good. But the true meaning of the Levitical passage about loving one another, loving God, loving your neighbor, it's shifted now. They are called to love, quote, as I have loved you. Why is it a new commandment? What's new Because it's focused and centered on Jesus. That's the newness of it. He's giving us the supreme example of what that means to to love, to give yourself. See, this is how men know who belongs to Jesus as his disciples their self sacrificial love after the order of Jesus, after the pattern of Jesus. Of course, Peter, you know, he's ready. Peter is, is a valiant man, he's ready to go, he's ready to go where he thinks Jesus is going. Peter probably thinks Jesus is going to go to fight. He's going to go to war. He's going to go and do battle against Rome. The insurrectionists are now here. We're going to to do this. We're going to do this Judas Maccabeus thing again. We're going to rebel, and we're going to restore godliness in Israel. Probably that's what Peter's thinking, but Jesus is thinking of the cross, and he says in verse 36 that he can't follow him there, but he will later. Most definitely a prophetic Announcement on Peter, who was crucified upside down. See, Jesus in verse 37 says, I lay my life down right now. See, Jesus, he knows Peter's fickleness. He knows about it. He's been with him three years now. You get to know people after three years, spending all that time together. And when things get hot, Peter will run. In fact, Peter, not only is he not going to go where Jesus is going... In fact, Peter is going to deny his Lord in the face of trial and pressure. When the heat gets turned up, Peter can't hang. Now, I want to zoom out a little bit and see what's really going on in this passage. I want to make sure we're seeing it from the fullest extent possible. The foot washing performed by Jesus should be seen as a total subversion of human society. The foot washing that Jesus performed in that room should be seen as a total subversion, a total subversion of human society. This act is something that threatens to destabilize everything the world has ever known. This this is a destabilization of everything man has ever attempted to establish in the glory of his own name. Peter is us. We're fumbling around in the darkness, trying to grasp understanding, but then we fail to see the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God. But the foot washing is just that. It is the total subversion of human society. Foot, and the reason is because foot washing, service, right, humility, destabilizes all the kingdoms of men. The kingdoms of men are marked by power and authority and, and death, Foot washing undoes all of it. That's just what self-sacrifice does. It destabilizes the kingdoms of men. The point Jesus is making here is quite obvious. He's connecting his action to the cross. Foot washing is a picture of the cross. And the cross, as we know, is the ultimate subversion of all human power and authority. See, the disciples, they cannot come to where he is going because it's not their task. It is not their task to atone for the sins of the world. It's his and the cross, we have to see those things together. The cross is looming over this whole action. We need to see it in light of foot washing. The cross of Christ, by definition, is the self-sacrifice of service to another. That's what it is. You want to see love? That's how we define it. We look to the cross. And what does it look like? Self-sacrificial service. Dying for another. Taking on the responsibility of, of another. That's leadership. That's how, we, that's how we do it. And Jesus didn't die to pay for his own sin, right? He died to pay for ours. This glory moment is the subversion and destabilization of all worldly power and authority. You see, it is impossible for the natural man to recognize the supreme God of the universe stooping low like a slave only to wash one's feet. The natural man does not have that type of category. This does not comport with the wisdom of the age. It does not comport with men who think that power and prestige is done by force and oppression. Which means we have a question that sits before us Is your theology so big and lofty as to include God washing your feet? Is your theology that big? Do you have a category for that? The reason the new commandment has glory attached to it is because it's defined by this very thing, self-sacrifice. And listen, if we are unwilling to accept this radical subversion of the world, then we are unwilling to participate in the new humanity that Christ has come to fashion. That's why repentance is what it is. That's why Peter, though he was quite eager, was mis- uh, misunderstood the whole thing. Repentance is is simple. You have to have a complete change of mind. This is a whole worldview shift. It destabilizes everything you ever thought in your natural mind. To see the current order of affairs as broken and fallen. I mean, we we think of the great sin of statism. Jordan, you prayed about that earlier. We, We... We are oppressing poor people by the way we do it. We oppress minorities, unjust prison systems. All these things, all of these orders are concoctions of men who don't want God, and they want to do things on their own forceful, top-down, oppressive terms. So that's why repentance is necessary, to see those things for what they are. And God hasn't given that light of illumination to, to much of the church. Much of the church is still, you know, p- putting on Fourth of July services where we um, worship the sky cloth and bow before America. We don't get it. By and large, we do not, as a church, understand the sin of statism and the way that seeps into everything and oppresses a whole bunch of people. So repentance is necessary. That's what Peter needed. He needed a shift of of his mind to understand and wrap his head around what Jesus was saying. You have to see the current order of affairs as being fallen and broken. And then you have to see Jesus Christ as being the true version of what authority and power is. That's authority and power. Jesus, he tells Peter that if he doesn't accept this for what it is, he has no place. If Peter is unwilling to accept the foot washing, how can he accept the cross? If you can't accept me washing your feet, how can you even accept the truth of the cross, which is an even greater picture of self-sacrifice? Peter can't. We can't. Jesus, he stooped as a servant. He set aside his garments to do the hard work of service. And it's hard work. It's hard work to look at your neighbor, your friend, the person sitting next to you, it's hard work to stop and say, what do you need that I can do for you? He Then he put his garments back on. He sat as the head as their Lord and Master, which means that what Jesus is essentially saying is, is that the Master is a servant and the servant is a Master. This is the total upside-down nature of the kingdom, right? Normal conceptions of authority and power are overturned and flipped on their heads. On its head. They're flipped upside down. Every formula produced by the tactics of sinful men results in power and authority used for oppression and affliction. But for those of us in Christ, we understand it is not to be this way. For those of us in Christ, for those who wish to partake in the kingdom of God via the cross and resurrection, the tactics of power and authority must not and will not be used to tyrannize others. And that takes on a whole bunch of different terms. Ungodly men who think that it's their job to control their wife. Ungodly fathers and mothers who think that the way that they are to train their children is through tyranny. (laughs) Ungodly magistrates who think that the way to control the masses is through power and authority. And that again, that seeps into a whole bunch of different things. But that is not the way of Christ. It's not cross-shaped power and authority if it is leveraged in such a way to oppress, to to put down and degrade other people. That is not the way of the foot washing. That's not the way of the cross. See the way we demonstrate. The way that you and I demonstrate our participation in the new order of which Christ is Lord is by discharging our responsibility of love and service towards others. This is not concepts now. This isn't conceptual. This is tangible. The way that we demonstrate our participation in Christ, in his kingdom, the way that the fruit of that is by discharging our responsibility of love and service towards others. The f- that, that's the fruit of a man or a woman who's marked by the kingdom. See, our neighbor, our neighbor, the person next to you here today, the person who, who you run into later, um, the person that you'll see tomorrow at work, our neighbor is the appointed recipient who has been authorized to receive everything that, is, that we owe to the Lord Jesus. Did you follow that? Everything that we owe to the Lord Jesus, our neighbor has been the appointed and authorized recipient of that expression of gratitude. So you want to show your love for Christ? Wash your, wash your neighbor's feet. right? You, you want to prove your faith in Jesus? What you should be doing is spending more time seeing a need and meeting a need than focusing on yourself. Not that there isn't room for self-care. There certainly is. But do you want to express your gratitude for Christ and all that he has done to bring you to himself? Do you want to tangibly worship him in ways that are genuinely spurred on by a love and a thankfulness and a gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for you? Then pour out your life. Pour your life out in service to others. That's the way it That's the way it works. Pour it out. Expend your energy on seeing to it that the person next to you is loved and cherished instead of lonely and despondent. Don't spend your life grasping and striving for the next bigger, better thing. Spend it on the neighbor. Spend it on a friend. Spend it on a spouse. Spend it on a child. Spend it. Don't keep it. It's meant to be spent See, when we are cleansed as participants in the kingdom, we are brought into the very same mission of Christ Himself. He was sent to serve, we are sent to serve. The church's loving witness and comprehensive action in the world is meant to be a reflection of Christ's loving witness and comprehensive action. This is not hard. Well, it is hard. (laughs) Conceptually, it's not hard. See, we not only, we're not only called to think God's thoughts after him, we must feel God's feelings. And we must rehearse God's actions. We are glory bearers. And that's the glory of the new commandment. But there's this tension involved. We have been brought into this strange and new reality, which we know stands in sharp distinction from the rest of the world. It's a different reality. This is a radical, discontinuous shift of being and existence in the world. When you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that's awkward. It's meant to be that way, though. The the new commandment is new by virtue of the fact that it rests on Christ. That's different. What is the world's version of love? State senators harassing old white people in front of a Planned Parenthood? Is that love? Is, is love higher taxes to oppress poor people and take your money to give it around to whoever wants to bomb children in Syria? Is that love? The world doesn't know what love is. It has no idea. But we know that love is the fulfillment of the law, but instead of it, instead of it being law and stone, we have law that has a face and a name, and His name is Jesus Christ. See, the, the social order of the kingdom Now that we're in the kingdom of light, it supplants the social orders of men, this comprehensive faith. See, until the church understands and acts on this truth, society around us won't be changed. Until we get this and act on this truth, our families and friendships won't be changed. Until we see the fully orbed gospel of the kingdom as being the very subversive thing that it is, we will not make a dent in the kingdom of darkness. See, we need to know that in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as leadership that does not include the master doing the work of a servant. We need to know that in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as a husband leading his home without serving his wife at every turn, not just once a year. We need to know that in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as a church that will not go into the world and serve the world around her, regardless of betrayal and persecution. Jesus washed Judas' feet. See, either we will be people of the cross and everything that entails in self-sacrificial love, or we will be people of the world, selfish, self-serving, and arrogant. And why is that the case? Because glory is at stake. Glory in the world is at stake. God is glorious, and he intends for the glory of his Son to be magnified in individuals, He intends for His glory to be magnified in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of this church, in the life of all nations. And the glory of God, as we know, is the display of the perfect justice and righteousness of God that's displayed in the face of the crucified and risen Lord. That's where we look. And it's our job to daily apprehend this glory and daily mimic this glory. And we do that by obeying the new commandment, by being shaped by being shaped by the fact that God stooped so low to wash our feet pouring ourselves out to an ungrateful world that's the task let's pray heavenly father we thank you that the greatest display of your justice and your holiness and your grace is found in your son our lord jesus the christ we are humbled We are humbled by what we've seen in your word. We are humbled by it because it shames us. And we consider that a grace. It shames us because we don't always act like this. We don't always serve the person next to us. But instead, we oftentimes like to think about ourselves more than our neighbor. And for that, Father, we repent. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to rid ourselves of of selfishness and instead give ourselves in service to you, and neighbor. Let me ask this in Christ's powerful name. Amen.